Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight, it's IPO fever. The new kids on the block are soaring, and it seems like there's no end in sight. But one Wall Street strategist says all the mania could be the sign of a top. We will explain. Plus, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb is here to talk about the big biotech deal. What's next for cannabis as New York attempts to legalize weed and the fake meat phenomenon. But we start off with a little bit of deja vu. Stocks right now near all-time highs and valued at just about the same as Wall Street saw at the two previous market peaks. September and May, a price-to-earnings ratio just below 17 for the next 12 months. So right now, ahead of what could be a couple of Fed rate cuts, and a trade deal still in the works of China. Is the market a value trade or a value trap? Guy. Who is that, like Dion Warwick? I, I think it is Dionne Dionne Warwick. Warwick. That's that's it. Cool. Like that wasn't on in your car on the way over. I love, no, I love that 70s Deja vu. My voice, I know it's so bad. I'm sorry. I apologize to the people at home. Now, I know you think you know me. And you're saying to yourself, I know G Swizzle over there is going to say absolutely value trap in terms of the S&P. Huh. And you know what, Mel? You'd be wrong. W-R-O-N-G wrong. I think it's a value trade. I think it's 17 times forward earnings in this environment, this low interest rate environment. The market's not expensive, but the market's not going to sell off because the market's expensive. It's going to be for other reasons. Those other reasons were the things we talked about right at the top. The fact that maybe the Fed's going to disappoint, or maybe there is no China deal, or maybe the situation with Iran gets worse. So the market has a lot of reasons to sell off. Valuation, the S&P 500 is not one of them, in my opinion. Go to the value queen. Yes. Well, you'd think that I would say it's a value trade. But I actually feel a little bit like it's a value trap in that, you know, I can see a little bit of a case for value trade if you were say, all right, rates were much higher. So the multiple, because rates are lower now, the multiple should be higher. Okay, that's reasonable. However, I am really concerned about the trade issue. I'm also concerned about it taking a much longer time. And in that waiting period, assuming we even get to a deal at the end, but in that waiting period that, that people are just more conservative. CEOs are more conservative. Spending slows down. And we're going to start to see earnings coming in, you know, shortly. Beginning in July, we'll start to see the banks. I'm concerned about earnings losing some of the momentum that they had earlier in the year. So I, I'm concerned. I get the argument that with interest rates low, that allows for a P.E. to be higher than maybe one would expect at this juncture in time. But if the reason why uh, interest rates are low is because of slowing growth, how do you account for that? Well, I think that's a really important to go back to. I mean, obviously, in about a day or so, we're going to be really focused on the Fed. The last time we saw the Fed go from hiking to cutting was 1998. It was to avert a crisis here in the U.S. It was that insurance sort of cut. There were three cuts in 1998. We had this Asian credit crisis, and then we had long-term capital. These were both crises. We don't have a crisis right now. So the fact of the matter is, we've had rates come in, which is making equities look more attractive, but they're coming in for the reasons that we're worried 
bit about a slower growth. And when you talk about what is the P.E. on the S&P 500, you know, the earnings part of that is really, really important here. So if we don't have visibility on corporate earnings and we do not right now, then I would say it is a value trap at this moment, given all the uncertainty, because we just don't want a surprise rate cut. You may get a pop because shorts are going to cover. There is not going to be the sort of torque to bust this market out. It's been in the 18-month range, and it's failed the last two times in a meaningful fashion. So to me, I just don't see the upside downside risk reward. Well, it here. seems like the outside wings are going with the trade wings. style. So I'm going to go with the trade style right. as well, because I agree with you. And as a matter of fact, when you've got the opportunity to protect your portfolio on top of that at a very inexpensive, and Karen talked about it last week, volatility trading in the 15s, 16s, it's a great opportunity. I think there are so many different values out there, Mel, right now. I think the opportunities grow every single day. I mean, you can go back a couple of weeks ago. Look at all the fanfare and all the, the panic about Facebook. Look at the panic about a lot of different names where when you look at them, I think there are a lot of names out there that still have opportunities for the upside. And I, obviously, it's, it is a, a stock picker's world, which I love. I would far rather be in a stock picker's world than an ETF world. And I think that there are great opportunities in almost every single day. Look at some of the housing names over the last couple of months, the, the, the explosive move to that upside when everybody said they can't. And you look at a lot of different areas. There are areas right now, I look at the airlines, for instance, and I think there are many names right there, Mel, where I think there is opportunity there because... Oil and the prices, jet fuel, all the rest of it, is not as big of a deal right now, I don't think, in terms of the valuation levels of where they are. They have pricing power right now, and I think that's very important. Right. So having said that the market overall is a value trap, where are you finding value in the market? Well, I mean, a lot of stuff that I have. So airlines is one. I do have airlines. I am nervous about it, but airlines generally have debt. Lower debt price is good. Lower oil price, of course. Jet fuel, second labor in jet fuel, that's a lot of the cost there. I like the banks. I'm still long the banks. Clearly a low-rate environment. Even if banks make money, people think it's terrible for banks, so they don't trade well, but that's okay. I think that a boom to the housing market is actually good for banks as well. Um, so I'm long that. And, and then I like sort of more idiosyncratic. Last week we briefly talked about something like Red Robin, like a deal stock. That's interesting to me, where you take away some of the market risks and exchange that for specific deal risk. You know, there's been a lot of crowding. You say you, you're a stock picker, and I know that you've been all over on Microsoft or a Salesforce, and I think there's a lot of crowding in those names. Whenever they come in, you know, people come in and buy them, and I think there's strong secular shifts. I'd say another area where there's a huge secular shift is this kind of aggregation of content, right? And so we've been talking a lot about Disney, and I think Disney up here at $140, it's a hard do. It was at $120 just a couple months ago, but it's one of those ones where I think where it comes back to that breakout, that's a stock you want to buy, Electric Arts, some of these names we've been talking about for a while here. There's some drivers in those businesses. They're not being appreciated right now, but you may have that sort of aha moment sometime in the fall with an EA like you had with a Disney on that business. But so to me, I think you want to find some stuff like that that resembles some of this cloud SaaS sort of stuff um, where just the, the industry is moving in that is, direction. Has Disney gone too fast, though? And I say that as a guy who actually owns the stock, and I look at it, and I feel like it has. And then all of a sudden the today, stock I, has gone too the fast. stock has moved to the upside. It's been an absolute great move to the upside. We all know all the different catalysts, so we don't need to go over that. But it has been a phenomenal move to the upside, very rapid from 100 to where it is right now. But then we got a downgrade today, I think, for the right reasons. It's probably in front of itself. I think there's a so, pullback coming probably. So my Disney. point, Pete, yeah. is, is really simply, this is the sort of market where if you want to be constructive, then you want to have names that you want to buy in a pullback. When Microsoft right. came back to the low 120s, did you see it going up 
$13 in a straight line once the market got better. It made a new high. I think you want to look for some of these names that have made new highs, and those are the ones that you want to buy in a pullback. It's interesting. Disney, even with the downgrade, and I, I don't just, I agree with you, actually, but the, even with the downgrade, only down half a percent today on a pretty benign tape. So Disney has hung in there extraordinarily well. I thought it was expensive as well, but you know, even when the broader market sold off, Disney was hanging in there. What would concern me, by the way, with the broader market, railroads very quietly are starting to roll over. They traded toward all-time highs month and a half, two months ago. They're all starting to roll over some downgrades today. That doesn't augur particularly well if they're the, so the bellwether for the, the, the broader economy. In terms of your question, gold miners continue to trade really well. Newmont Mining up eight-tenths of a percent today on a day where gold really did nothing. Gold miners, to me, are breaking out to the upside. I just want to um, follow up because we have a couple charts, KSU. And this was a name that got hit really hard when we had that kind of Mexican tariff bluff and the stock got hit. Came all the way back after, obviously, uh, the president caved on that one. But look at this thing. It's starting to move lower. And I think that's really an important point that Guy just made. You want to look at some of these names that should be performing better when you have obstacles taken from them. Another one is the banks. I know that you keep saying we did have the 10-2. The we, we did have that that that. Uh, the curve steepened pretty dramatically, you know, off the lows. The banks caught a bid. Now they've come all the way back. So to me, that doesn't kind of, uh, you know, doesn't reinforce some sort of underlying strength, despite what you're seeing in the home builders. So you think the banks are value trapped? Yes. Let's see. Let's see. I mean, we'll wait. Three well, let's see. We could say that for the last 18 months. I mean, literally, they just they have not made a new high as the S&P has made two new highs, you know, since January of 2018. So to me, I, I don't know why that's an area you want to be in, especially if you're really worried I about the banks, global growth. But I would say that you're probably right. It has been a value trap. I mean, how do we deny the fact that it has been? Because we've been sitting there waiting for this move that we just don't ever really get the move that we're expecting. And I think you and I would both agree. Bank of America. But but here's the key. When you get the dividend yield that you get, and if you're using options, and I know Karen does a lot of this as well, and you're selling options against a stock position, even though the stocks aren't performing, you can outperform the market by an incredible amount if you're getting that dividend yield and sucking in those premiums. So I know what you're saying, Dan, and it has been a trap for now. I think at some point, I don't know when, but right now, you can outdo the S&P 500 very easily with those dividends on top of Maybe, but I just want to make one point. Look at like American Express. Look at Visa. Look at MasterCard. When the market goes back to the prior highs, when it gets there, those stocks make new highs. The banks, like the XLF, if you look at it as in its totality, hasn't got within 6 7 8% no, of no, the no, January. I don't, think, I don't think that's true, no, actually. No, it is true. It no, is, I don't true. think J. I don't think it's true. Really? J.P. Morgan has definitely. No, I said the totality of them, the XLF. All right, yeah, I don't yeah. like the totality yeah. of them. No, I like when they bicker. I like when they split them up. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, a split. I think you know, it's split. just it's just like she immediately goes back to J.P. Morgan. You know what I mean? It's just like you know, yes, obviously J.P. Morgan's acted very well, but it doesn't act well now. I mean, it doesn't, and it is the leader of the group, they, and so the group, you know, look at the XLF. It they just split the run. They split Dan and Pete. It was right. supposed to be Dan. I'll and fight with Pete. You want to fight? He and I go head to head. No more fighting. No more fighting. I do yeah. own MasterCard, by the way. Okay. But it ain't. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's been a long time. But it ain't. <laughs> All right. Our next guest says if you're looking for value in the market, there's one classic group of safety trades about to shine. Chartmaster Carter Worth is over at the Plaza to break it down. Carter. Hi, guys. Happy Monday. So there is a lot going on, of course, in the world of precious metals and alternative things like that. But let's start with what's been happening year to date. What we know is there are a lot of, of course, dedicated ETFs to gold to silver, some are triple leverage and so forth. But in its totality, ETFs year-to-date have been net buyers of gold. You see the figure here. And they've been net sellers of silver. 
And um, we know year-to-date one is up about 4.5% and the other is down about 4.5%. The spread year-to-date but also long-term is fairly uh, epic and I think that's an opportunity for the laggard silver. So working through some of the numbers, gold prices relative to silver at 26-year highs. This is the sort of gold-silver ratio. It's right now above 90. Simply how much does it take in terms of silver to purchase one ounce of gold? And take a look at the following. This is the gold-silver ratio going back to 1960. And every one of these peaks, when we have gotten to a certain level, we have pulled back quite dramatically. Now, does this have to be a peak? That's the judgment part. I think that it is. Let me show you what happened every other time when it peaked and then started to come off. In terms of performance, silver, six months later and one year, absolute. So these are the absolute dates, the actual dates of those peaks. And what silver did, not relative, just outright performance, six months later, one year later. So if and as this is indeed another peak in the gold-silver ratio, it would be, by all accounts, and that's the judgment here, a great opportunity to buy silver, which really has lagged, again, at 26-year lows relative to gold. So here is a short-term chart of the gold-silver ratio. Again, it's just over 90, several ways to draw the lines. Here, with the moving average, now you can only get so far above trend before typically you trend back to you're moving average. The bet is that that's about to happen again. Another way to look at it, same exact time frame, and now put a channel on it. It is literally, and this has been going from the bottom to the top, from the bottom to the top, 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 and the simple bet is that we reached a point, for all the reasons discussed so far, that this is likely at a peak, and one wants to buy silver. Doesn't mean that gold can't go up, but that silver or they both go down, but silver goes down less. The gold-silver ratio at a peak, that's the judgment. So now let's talk about uh, one of the more exciting things, Bitcoin. Um, and of course, this has been a, a big thing year to date. And what we know <coughs> is there's a lot of standoff. I want to show you this uh, setup here. And now take a look at some lines. Here we go. Ready? Has it broken above this downtrend line? Of course it has. That's optically very, very clear. Let's put in the bottom line. Is it a wedge from which it just broke out? That's fairly clear too. Short term, and with this, look at this chart. And what we've got here is this, and then a consolidation. This, and then a consolidation, it's just breaking out. So we're back to the days of the Bitcoin bug, perhaps. I think the important thing is not about how high it can go, it's that the lows of December are likely to stand as important lows, and that this is an enduring thing uh, to be played on the long side. Carter, why don't you come on over? We've got lots of questions here. <coughs> he he works that Karen. machine. I've never yeah. seen it better, ever. Jonah's first. Jonah, come on, clap, Jonah. Can we get Jonah? Come on, man, Jonah. How great is Jonah? He's, yes, we yeah. are. Fantastic. We, were um, we do have the Bitcoin bug up, just in case you guys didn't notice. <laughs> Um, so, Carter, I read today that one Bitcoin strategist type person said that there's a near perfect in or negative correlation between Bitcoin and the S&P 500 since May. That was happened to be when China decided to raise tariffs on the United States. And I'm wondering from your standpoint, from a technical standpoint, is there any sort of inverse correlation 
to the markets. The thing about correlations, as you know, uh, they, they're enduring until they're not. They have duration and they're not. So they're for certain, let's take oil. There have been times when oil is very, very strong, yet the transports are doing well, when one would think that shouldn't be the case. Uh, sometimes it's also with all commodities, the, the dollar, and yet commodities are moving in a certain direction. If you're having a drought, it doesn't matter what the currency is going to do, soybeans and corn are going to move up, right? So that the correlation, uh, sometimes it's in effect, sometimes not. So what is the path? I mean, you said Bitcoin goes higher. Yes, I mean, right, so I mean, the temptation would call a level. Who knows? But the important thing is this. It bottomed in December when everything bottomed, and it also is gapping of late, uh, which is fairly rare. It hasn't had a lot of gaps. Something that trades 24-7 is very unlikely to have a gap. Yes, and it's got two gaps this year. That's a very bullish uh, and aggressive kind of thing. It reflects um, insensitivity to price, where people are paying almost anything to get in. Do you have any kind of volume overlay there that uh, either... Not so much. Or, okay. Right, and then that, that's a limitation, but there are uh, sort of ways to basically feel the urgency of the buying, and the buying is urgent, right? Just as the selling has been urgent. But the setup is so remarkable. People who were dealing with pencil and paper talked about wedges going back 150 years, and there's a perfect wedge, and it broke out. It's kind of nice. I'm going to ask you to take your technician hat off for a brief moment, Carter, and say, are you surprised with how well gold's traded, despite the fact that the U.S. dollar's traded particularly well? And does that, is that a tell in your world? I mean, that's, that's the hope, right? So the dollar, in principle, has two things. Well, one thing going for it, one doesn't. We know that as the rate environment collapses, that's, a, that's a sort of a negative for the dollar. And yet the dollar is a, is a safe haven. So if risk increases, that is a positive. And those two things have sort of been a standoff. The dollar has been fallow and dead, but slumping of late. Carter, thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. Right. Carter Braxtonworth, a cornerstone macro. <laughs> Would you rather rather? Oh, uh, double. Uh, uh, uh. Gold, silver, Bitcoin. Um, it's a good one. I, I mean, listen, the, the, the gold and the silver charts look really constructive. The Bitcoin seems obviously more dangerous to me because it was at 3,000 a few months ago, and here it is. Um, people are saying it's going to break out above 10,000. I just don't have a good feel for it. I think the charts suggest that the gold and silver are in a really nice uptrend, and you want to continue to play that if you continue to be as worried as some people on this desk are. X, Pete. Are you in any of those assets? I'm in a bunch of them. Okay. Actually, I, I was just looking. GLD has been all over the place. I know Dan's probably seen it as well. But GLD, GDX, GDXJ, you name it. All the different minor names as well, Guy, have been hitting like crazy. From Newmont all the way through all the different. SSRM, I think, hit the other day, which I'd never even heard of. But it's another gold miner. It's Canadian. And most of their assets are down here. But those are all hitting. And I tell you, Mel, it's been consistent and large and a lot of movement there. So my guess is that people are using this now again as quote-unquote protection, but we'll, we'll have to see. But I like what we're seeing there, and I'm in all those different names. All right, coming up, Fang on Fire. Facebook and Netflix both going parabolic today. Are big tech's big worries behind them? The traders will weigh in. Plus, the hot IPO market's getting even hotter, but one Wall Street strategist says if history is any indication, all the fury could be a sign of the top. He will explain. And later, infamous tweeter in Tesla CEO, Elon Musk just said he is deleting his Twitter account and the stock was soaring today. Is Musk's erratic behavior on Twitter over? We've got the details. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. 
edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. There's a reason that we keep having these privacy scandals that come week after week after week. And it's because there is nowhere else to go. I mean, just last year, everybody said, I'm going to delete Facebook. I can't stand it anymore. And how many of your friends, at least of mine, said, I'm going to go to Instagram? Now realizing that it's part of the exact What's same the mechanism company. for? That was Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes on Squawk Box this morning on the vastness of the Facebook empire. But even with talk of regulation and the threat of a potential breakup, it is seemingly impenetrable. The stock soaring today ahead of its uh, release of the white paper on its cryptocurrency. That's expected tomorrow. The move praised by SunTrust as a way for the social media giant to diversify beyond excuse me, advertising revenue and into payments and finance. Facebook, also the best performer of the FANG trade this year, bouncing back from the privacy scandals that crushed the stock last summer. So will crypto save Facebook? Pete. I don't know that crypto's there to save Facebook, but certainly I think it is another piece. I think it's one more piece of the puzzle of what's, what's going on there. As Chris mentioned in that, that interview, how many people even knew Instagram was owned by Facebook? Apparently not as many as, as expected, but... They're one of the different verticals. We talk about verticals all the time, different ways. Instagram, in a couple of years, will probably be close to 30% of the revenue for Facebook. So are they going to split these guys up? Well, if they do, there's going to be some cash to be made, too, because of some of the parts right now, I think right now at Facebook, would be an astronomical number relative to where they are now. But you asked about crypto. I think crypto could be big. I think the idea that AT&T has made it something that's not just cool for kids it's cool for other areas as well. An old company like AT&T getting more interested in the idea of you can pay in crypto. I mean, are you kidding me? I think all of that moves them that much further or that much closer to that could be another different vertical for them that could be someday big. I don't know how long that's going to take. Yeah, Karen? Well, I'm long Facebook. I do. I agree with Pete that I think I'm not so afraid of the idea of it. If it were to be split up quickly and easily, that would be, I think, a big benefit to the stock. I think that's not so likely to happen. I mean, this I, I'm not in it at all for crypto. So maybe no. it has what eight points from today <laughs> is crypto. Yeah. I think the the weight on the stock from their FTC situation and whatever further. We don't even know. Whatever further legislation comes out, whatever further penalties there may be, that weighs much more heavily on Facebook. All that having been said, though, I, I still like it here. I think it's not expensive. The idea, though, that Facebook could finally potentially transact, become a transactional platform. I mean, isn't that, hasn't that been the holy I, grail, especially for core Facebook, which has been declining? Well, I think we're actually misusing the term here. I mean, we're, really, it's about WhatsApp. It's about what 1.3 billion active users on WhatsApp. How do you monetize an acquisition they bought five years ago for $20 billion, and they've not you know, done anything with it? We'll you see do it. We'll see when they would... Well, that, no, but that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm agreeing with you guys. I think the payments opportunity, forget using the term crypto, because it is right. a stable coin. It is going to be, uh, you know, something that 1.3 billion active users on WhatsApp and then that expands to over 2 billion uh, network wide are going to have access to transact with. Companies are going to have more reasons to be on their platform, right, if people can transact easily. So to me, I think this goes straight at the heart of, um, you know, all the stuff that Apple's trying to do with pay, Samsung's trying to do with pay, uh, Google's trying to do with wallet. I mean, Amazon pay buttons all over the web. This is a massively defensive thing, and it's actually offensive in a lot of ways. So I think it's great. I don't think it's just been eight dollars today. This stock was trading near 160 at the start of this month, and it's now yeah, nearly 190. But that's when they really started talking about Libra, or it started leaking out. So I think there's a lot of good news in it, and I don't expect to see any major announcements about the transactions on this thing for a while. So 
you know, you might be late to the game. So the report July 24th, assuming the market's benign from now until then, which I think you just make that assumption, I think the stock continues to trend higher. 197 is going to be a huge level, but we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and we flagged that 160 level that Dan just mentioned. We said, hey, folks, huge volume on the day. It traded down to 161, 50% retracement of the December 24th low and the recent high we made after earnings. Perfect place to get in. The risk-reward sets up. Here we are some $25, $27 later, and there's the stock. So gets through 197 which it should, and then you have the all-time high in the crosshairs in earnings on the 24th of July. All right. For more on Facebook and uh, from more from its co-founder, Chris Hughes, head on over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. I'm forever blowing bubbles. IPO mania is heating up. But could it be a bubble that's about to burst? A top strategist says yes, and he'll be here to explain why. Plus, a $10 billion biotech deal has investors running to the group. And the former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb will tell us why there could be more deals ahead. There's much more Fast Money right after this. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's been a red-hot year for IPOs. Investors have been flooding into these stocks with a handful of surge, a handful surge, surging triple digits since their IPO. Beyond Meat leading the pack here up over 500% since going public. And it doesn't look like the IPO frenzy is about to stop. Bob Pisani is at the NYSE to break it all down. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. Seven this week are coming. We've had 66 IPOs so far this year. They've raised $26.7 billion. That is a very strong first half showing, considering the IPO market was not even open in the first two months of the year due to the government shutdown. So incredible returns here. It's the overall returns that are impressive. So look here. 57% of those 66 IPOs are trading above their IPO price. That's fairly typical. But look at this. The average return so far this year is 22%, way above average. And the average first day pop is 28%. Heavens, that is way above a typical number. So what exactly is going on? The companies doing best, the ones that are really popping, are high-growth companies. So we saw Beyond Meat, we saw Zoom, we saw PagerDuty. They've had triple-digit gains, Pinterest, TradeWeb. They're up over 40%, all very high growth. But even the three IPOs from last week, Chewy, Fiverr, and particularly CrowdStrike, they've had huge gains in a few days. And all three are in different spaces, so you can't say, oh, it's just cybersecurity. Everything is popping that has any growth. We'll see what happens when we get these seven more IPOs this week. Plus Slack, 
via a direct listing. Not really an IPO, but we're sort of counting it that way. Not all high-growth IPOs have been the winners. The obvious ones, Uber and Lyft. Uber number one for the year in terms of money raised, and Lyft number three uh, in terms of the money raised. Still down, Uber's closing the gap a little bit. What do they lack that the others have? Well, right now, investors are not impressed with the economics of ride-hailing, specifically the deep losses they've seen there. In addition, both suffered from valuation issues. Remember, neither of them have had a successfully publicly traded peer you can compare them against, and both priced well above their last round of funding. So they're off on a little category by their own. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob, thank you, Bob Pisani. Well, our next guest says, if history is any indication, the IPO mania could actually spell trouble for stocks. Noah Weisberger is a head of U.S. portfolio strategy at Bernstein. Noah, great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Um, and you actually found that there's a relationship between the number of IPOs that go out and earnings? Be- uh, between returns, forward okay, returns. returns. So what we found going back 30 years is that peaks in IPO activity tend to be correlated with more muted forward returns. So not negative returns, but a bit of a headwind to the market. And... In interpreting that, I'm not sure if it's that, you know, the IPOs are just too much supply for the market to take down or if it's that, you know, corporates are kind of clever. And when they time the IPOs and they do it after the market's rallied, when multiples are at a premium, is it causing one or the other? I don't don't know that we have an answer, but it is an interesting and kind of a, a consistent historical pattern. So what we've seen so far in terms of the flood of IPOs, does that make you concerned about forward returns and how far out would you be concerned about? Right. So, so I would say two things. First, uh, the wave of activity we've seen in the IPO market is still really modest compared to some of the big booms we've seen, certainly uh, you know, in the late 90s, but even in the 2000s. The entire post-great financial crisis period, the run rate of activity has been pretty muted. And 2016, when we saw economic activity pick up. That's usually correlated with IPO activity. It didn't happen. So it could be that we just have been waiting for some of this to come to market, and it looks like it's a big flush of activity, but it really isn't. And so I'm not sure exactly how worried we would be just on the activity alone. That said, I think it does dovetail with our broader set of market views, which is, look, we have a 2950 target for the end of this year. That's not a lot of headroom. And I think it just goes to speak to the fact that, you know, what's the optimism? What's getting you excited about stocks here? Even the IPO market tells you, you know, things are getting a little bit old and long in the tooth. No, we just spent 10 minutes at the top of the show debating the S&P 500 at 16 and a half times whether it was cheap uh, or what what the deal was. Now you have all these issues coming out in such a crowded fashion at really crazy valuations with no real earnings per se, if you take the whole lot of them. Does it make you worried that we're having a flush of these very expensive names at high valuations and then six months from now we're going to have tons more stock because we know most of these had very small floats? Right. So, so I think what's interesting on the valuation front is that, you know, on the one hand, I would argue that valuations probably at the index level start to compress from here because a lot of the accelerants, the, the margin growth um, doesn't exist anymore. We think earnings should be slowing, and that usually means uh, a bit of multiple compression. That said, where we're less worried are some of these growth names. And so as economic growth slows at this point in the cycle, we think there should be a premium um, for quality growers and, and quality compounders. We think idiosyncratic growth is something that gets rewarded uh, late in the cycle. And in the context of the current cycle, if the Fed is going to cut or not, but with interest rates where they are, be patient. You're not being, you're, you're, there's no reason for you to be, be worried about long-term growth views. Maybe there's a hiccup in the middle, but you know, at 210 on the 10-year yield, what's the duration risk you're worried about? So I'm burning the candle at both ends. I think multiples compress at the index level, but I'm not really worried that you're paying a very high multiple from a levels perspective for a long-term growth story. Noah, thanks so much for coming by. It's fascinating stuff. Great. My pleasure. Karen, what do you think? I don't know. I'm, I sort of feel like they're, you know, seeing markets react as they have to the last few that have just gone berserk, that the private equity is just rushing as quickly as they possibly can to get anything out the door. So I, I'm a little concerned about quality control 
going forward? Quality control specifically for the IPOs, but in terms of what it might what mean for the markets? Well, not what it might mean for the markets, okay. just in terms of like, are they, you know, do they see this as a, as a, they normally wouldn't have this option open at all, now they might and just shove anything out the door. Right. Pete? You know, no one talk about quality and growth and yeah. all the rest of that. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, that's what you're talking about. You, you mentioned at the top of the show, selective. You pick around, you look around, you find quality with growth, and I think you've got a great combination there. But this IPO market, I think it something that speaks to me is you look at Lyft, you look at uh, everybody was waiting for that in Uber, right? I mean, that was the excitement, I think, of all the names of the two biggest. And then you look at where they are and what they've done since the IPO. I think it says a lot because I think people are being a little bit more careful about overpaying for some of these names that don't have any earnings. They don't make money yet. I mean, those, those I think, are problems that exist for some of these names that are going to persist for years. That's a real problem for me. All right. Well, still ahead, Tesla shares jumping 5% today. A CEO, Elon Musk, tweeted that he deleted his Twitter account last night. Stock seeing an epic rebound off its June low. Should you trust the bounce? Plus, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb will be here to weigh in on the biotech M&A boom and what he is calling a day of reckoning for the cannabis craze. That is after the break. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was a tweet heard around the world. Tesla CEO Elon Musk tweeting late last night, just deleted my Twitter account. But as of this moment, his account is still active and he's showing some signs of life, changing his handle, which he changed on Sunday night from daddy.com back to just Elon Musk in just the past few hours. And you know what they say, there are no coincidences. Well, shares of Tesla soaring 5% today, adding to its rally this month, now up more than 20% in June. Is the market's message to Elon Delete your account. Dan. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear. It was the SEC's message. It was some of their board members' message. It was some of their large investors' message. And I think that, you know, obviously he is a tremendous attribute to this company, but he's been of late a big headwind to the stock, or at least its positive performance. So today, I mean, you search around, there's no other news here, um, and that's it. I think that if he just kind of put his head down and did the things that you'd expect out of an automaker who's going against massive competition, it might be a really good thing for the stock and stay off the social Let media. Let me just play devil's yeah. advocate for a sure. second. If that is why, that he felt pressured to delete his account, might he have a little less bargaining power? And, right? If, let's say, deliveries are, are not going to be strong, right? Let's say he, you know, they're like, listen, you really got to focus because this is not working right now. Let's say that was the reason that he said, fine, I'll succumb to the pressure to delete my account. So he should wait that a couple of weeks for when the delivery numbers come out at the end for the, for the June time period. And then delete the Twitter account if they didn't meet expectations? I'm just wondering, is that an interpretation that also could be reasonable? I don't know. I mean, I don't don't know. I don't have a position long or short. I Uh, just... So I thought this might be the ultimate joke on the part of Elon Musk by saying that he's deleting his Twitter account, but then going back in there and like changing his name and still being out. Apparently, Dan points out that it takes a while for you to delete your Twitter account. You can't just go in there and delete. You have to deactivate it. You wait. You don't log in for 30 days. And then they decide to remove your account. So it takes some time. So we just need to see him not log. We know he logged in recently because he changed his name from daddy.com back to Elon Musk. So the clock resets, so he has to wait another 30 days, and we'll see if he remains active. So, first of all, I love to throw out accolades when... I I give Dan accolades all the time when Hmm. justified. But Carter Braxton Worth, couple weeks ago, I mean, you talk about nail on the bottom in Tesla. That sucker CBW absolutely did. And then we asked him, right, where do you sell the double on the way back up? And he said somewhere between 225 and 230. 
Look where we are now. And I got to tell you something. If you look in terms of a downtrend, this is a stock that continues to make lower lows and lower highs. And you're coming right up at a trend line back from December when it was 375. Good for Carter. Get out of your lungs now. All right. Coming up, biotech stocks heating up today after Pfizer said it would buy Array Biopharma for more than $10 billion. Will this open the floodgates to more M&A? Former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb will be here to discuss that, the cannabis craze, and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another big biotech deal on Wall Street today with Pfizer announcing its nearly $11 billion acquisition of Array Biopharma. Shares of Array surging 57% as a result. Now, so far, it's been a pretty big year for biotech M&A, including Bristol-Myers' $74 billion acquisition of Celgene and Eli Lilly's $8 billion purchase of Loxo Oncology. So as the deal space heats up, which name should investors look to as the next takeout target? Peter. You know, it's tough to name what the next takeout target might be, but I think the reality is, what did Pfizer do here? Pfizer actually already had a pipeline, and now they've added to it. They didn't jump into the 70-plus billion-dollar deals, $50 billion deals, $11 billion. They have the cash. They're willing to have a little bit on debt. I like what they're doing here, and this is why I continue to hold this stock. I think this builds into that whole thing. that They've got 15 different blockbuster drugs right now in the pipeline. This can add to that because of the fact of what Array brings them is more in cancer and colorectal. All of that is going to be huge for them. And I, I just think that this makes total sense right now for Pfizer. A lot of guys were bashing this today saying, why do they need to buy into their pipeline? There? That's be, I think that's the right thing to do right now. And I think this is a CEO who's relatively new on the job, but been there 25 years, who's doing exactly the right thing. There are names that have hit recently. You know, we, we, we were, I was just talking about with one of the producers, FOLD. There are names out there where I think in the biotech world that makes some sense for somebody maybe along the line. The problem is it seems to me that everybody wants to make the big, big deals. So I think there are smaller names out there, this being one of them, where I think there's a better opportunity with a smaller name like this that could be a big deal for Pfizer in the future. Well, our next guest is no stranger to the biotech space. As former FDA commissioner, he oversaw a record number of drug approvals, helping to combat everything from the opioid crisis to the rise of e-cigarettes. He just rejoined his post at venture capital firm, New Enterprise Association, which specializes in healthcare and technology investments, where he worked before becoming FDA commissioner. CNBC contributor Scott Gottlieb joins us now from Washington, D.C. Dr. Gottlieb, great to have you with us. Good to Thanks see you. Thanks for having me. Um, so in your capacity now, back at your old job, I'm, I'm wondering how you look at the landscape and how you interpret what's going on in terms of the M&A wave, particularly the focus on, on cancer um, and, and how you translate that into what you guys are investing in. Well, look, in oncology, we're seeing a real renaissance in our understanding of the biology of cancer, and that's leading to regulatory changes and policy changes that's creating a much more efficient route to market for many of these compounds. Um, you're seeing really dramatic results in early stage clinical trials with these cancer compounds because you're able to select populations of patients that are so exquisitely um, targeted with the drugs that are being put into development because we're, we're targeting the underlying mechanisms that are now driving disease. And that's attracting additional investment into this space. And that's ultimately good for patients. Of the 59 compounds that were approved last year by the FDA in 2018, novel compounds, 19 were in cancer. And there were 38 supplemental approvals in oncology. So this really is a renaissance time for um, discovery and development in oncology. What were the major, major changes in regulation that enabled this to happen, that sort of facilitated um, these clinical trials, facilitated uh, the path to approval? 
Well, I think the changes in regulation really followed the science. And so you see things like tissue agnostic approvals, which we codified in guidance while I was at the agency, allowing sponsors to get approval for um, indications based not just on where the tumor arose in the body, but the particular molecular drivers of the tumor. So you could actually get an approval based on the genomics of how the drug worked. Things like basket trials, which allowed sponsors to study drug effects in multiple tumor types, all in the context of the same clinical trial. And if you could show a response across multiple tumors in different organ systems, you can get an approval across all those different disease states. Previously, we had looked at oncology based on where the tumor arose, but because the drugs themselves are targeting the underlying basis of the disease, now the FDA is looking at approving drugs based on those molecular targets, not just on where tumors arise in the body, recognizing that the disease is sometimes the same regardless of where the tumor is arising. On the venture level, where is a lot of the money going outside of oncology? What's sort of the next frontier? Well, I think the, the next frontier that we really haven't cracked the biology of is the brain. And I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities in neurodegenerative diseases, psychiatric diseases, where we really are in, in the early innings of understanding the biology of the brain. We've, we've effectively drugged all the major organ systems in the body, and we've understood the biology of how those drugs work and how those organ systems can go awry to create disease. We, we don't have that in, in understanding when it comes to um, neurodegenerative diseases. So I think that's a huge unmet medical need and a huge investment opportunity. I want to take a hard right turn, if we can, Dr. Gottlieb, and talk about alt meats. <laughs> With Beyond Meat hitting the market, there's, there's been such an interest in these alternative uh, meat products out there. Um, do you think the FDA should take any sort of, is this in the purview of the FDA at all to make sure that, that it's safe? That Well, absolutely. You know, uh -huh. The plant-based meat products are, are squarely in the purview of the, uh, the FDA. And Impossible um, uh, Foods took an interesting regulatory strategy, getting their heme additive to the soy product that, that constitutes their burgers approved as a color additive. So it was a very novel regulatory path through the agency. Where there's more regulatory uncertainty is when it comes to cultured meat, meat that's being developed through um, culturing processes that mirror biotechnology processes as sort of substitutes for slaughtered meat. Um, this, is a, this is another significant opportunity. You have companies like Finless Fish um, and many other companies, Memphis Meats, getting into this space. And the costs are coming down to the point where these are going to be competitive products. Um, we're fi we were figuring when I was at the agency that this would constitute a significant portion of the market um, going forward or eventually as the costs continue to come down. The fish products fall squarely within FDA's purview, but when it comes to meat and poultry, uh, beef and poultry, there is some ongoing um, questions between USDA and FDA about which, which agency has jurisdiction over which parts of that culturing process, of that manufacturing process. We settled a lot of it when I was at the agency, but there are some lingering questions going mm -hmm. forward about where those regulatory lines will get drawn. I mean, the term cultured meat kind of gives me the chills, but <laughs> I, I want to take another turn and ask you about CBD, and that's a topic that we have talked about a, a lot, but we've, we're seeing more and more products hit the shelves at mainstream retail locations like Walgreens, et cetera. What's your take on CBD and, and how much more regulation there needs to be here? Well, there's going to be more regulation of CBD. There has to be. Um, CBD is not a benign compound. There are side effects associated with um, taking too much CBD. There might be a cumulative effect. You know, if you're having CBD products in your food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're probably getting a pretty high dose of CBD. I think Congress had an expectation that CBD, at least derived from hemp, would, would ha find a legal path to the marketplace. 
Um, so FDA needs to figure that out, what the regulatory path is going to be. They recently had a workshop. I think one thing that the agency could do is put the onus back on the CBD manufacturers to come in and file petitions with the agency demonstrating that this this substance can be safely put in food. Um, the challenge right now, the political challenge, is that CBD derived from hemp. Hemp itself as a crop can grow in a lot of soil that isn't very rich. And so you see a lot of states like New Hampshire and Maine and Massachusetts, states that traditionally don't have big agricultural industries, seeing this as a real opportunity to grow out their agricultural base. And so it has a lot of political support. And CBD itself is a derivative of hemp, is a high-value derivative. And so everyone wants to find ways to put CBD into the food supply and create that new marketplace. But it needs to be done safely. You've called it snake oil to me. You well, by look, that? I, I think that... I think the science, the, um, the uses of CBD have gotten well ahead of the science. There is an approved mm -hmm. compound, Epidiolex, by um, GW Pharma that has shown efficacy in, in pediatric seizure disorders. And there'll be other demonstrated uses of, of purified and high-dose high forms of CBD. I'm quite certain of it. But the idea that you can put it in dog food and it's going to calm your dog as you go away to work during the day or, or help them get through a lightning storm, um, I think that's pretty hokey, and there's certainly no science to support that. And so I think the uses of CBD and, and what people are trying to do with it have gotten well ahead of where the science is. Dr. Gottlieb, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your Thanks time. Thanks a lot. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and CNBC contributor. Guy Dami, we covered a lot of ground. A lot of ground. Oh, my Ooh. God. I mean, yeah. first of all, I think that's the first time he's on the show, number one. Great interview. Number two, if you're asking me in the stock world, I go to three places. Biogen is too cheap. I understand they missed on Alzheimer's, but you know what? Everybody's missing Biogen too cheap here. Bluebird Bio, if you remember two years ago, that was everybody's favorite pick. That stock has come off, but you know what? That's in the crosshairs now, and I'll tell you what. Sarepta now is the absolute crosshairs for somebody to buy them, so those are my three. Coming up, it's been clear skies for the cloud stocks this year, and traders are betting big on one name reporting this week. We've got the details next. We are live at the NASDAQ in New York City. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Two big cloud names reporting this week. Dan's at the Plasma with what to expect. Dan. Yeah, Adobe is the big one to me. That reports tomorrow after the close. The options market is implying about a 4% move in either direction. That's in line with the average over the last four quarters of about 4% also, but down from the 10-year average, about 5%. Um, you know, this one looks kind of cheap to me uh, as, as far as the implied move is concerned. Here's the one-year chart of the chart since the start of 2018. Look at this thing. It's actually consolidated really um, nicely here at those prior highs earlier in the month. It had a dip. It found some technical um, support right at its 200-day moving average. And I just want to make one point. How do we figure out the implied move? We take the weekly at-the-money straddle. That is the call premium plus the put premium. If we looked at the 275 strike that expires this Friday, that's about $12. If you have a directional bias and you want to define your risk, either up or down, you could buy that at-the-money call for about $6 or that at-the-money put for about $6. And that way, you are only risking 2% of the stock price. To me, this implied move in Adobe looks fairly cheap. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. For more options action, full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Stick around. Final trades up next. Final trades, Pete. During the show tonight, we talked about IPOs. I tell you, one of them that's really working, and I think it continues to work to the upside, DocuSign. Giddy up. Yeah. Chairwoman, if you want to stay long or have to stay long like I do, you got to own some S&P puts. Something bad could happen. Dan Nathan. Well, you know, if you're long Karen's JP Morgan, you could also <laughs> sell the XLF against it. That actually sets up as a decent pair straight price. Oh, interesting. Guy? You know, one thing I learned over the years, you go with the hot hand there, Mel. And you know who's had a hot hand? Who? Carter Braxton Worth. <laughs> and at Costco, he was right a couple weeks ago breaking out, sucker. 
that does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.